Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. This is Anna David. You're listening to After Party Pod. It's a podcast about addiction and recovery, and it's released every two weeks on iTunes, SoundCloud, at all. And it is a part of After Party Magazine, which is a, an amazing website. And I can say that because I started it. It's all about addiction and recovery, but it's funny. We're a part of RehabReviews.com, which is the world's largest resource for rehab reviews. That one's not as funny, but it's incredibly useful if you're looking for treatment for yourself or a loved one. You can find us online, AfterPartyMagazine.com, RehabReviews.com. We're on all that social media stuff at AfterParty site on Twitter, at the AfterParty group on Facebook. If if you go to AfterPartyMagazine.com, you can find find it all. So today I have an amazing guest and he's somebody that, do you mind that I'm just getting right into this? I figure why not? I get sick of hearing my own voice and according to some of your reviews, you do too. Not all of you. By the way, if you want to review this podcast, if you want to balance out those people who don't like my voice, ah, there was a girl who once wrote, Anna David has what my mother used to call a quote, unfortunate personality. You know what? I think you've got an unfortunate personality to write that. Honestly, I get the nicest emails and and a lot of you say really nice things. But if you want to balance her out, pretty sure it's a woman. I determined that at some point as I stalked her. You can go review it on iTunes and subscribe. It helps other people find this podcast. Now, anyway, today I have the author of the book, For the Love of Money. And his name is Sam Polk. And I first heard about him when he wrote a piece for the New York Times, which was called For the Love of Money, which went insanely viral in about three seconds. And it talked about money addiction. And I think we actually wrote something about it on on After Party. And he had already been working on a book for the love of money. And that is recently released. And it is, as I told him, unputdownable. I said it to him and I'm saying it now, even though it's not even really a word. That's how unputdownable it is. And in it, he talks about all sorts of addictions. He talks about food addiction and sex addiction and drug and alcohol addiction. He is sober 14 years. And now he is, he's escaped from Wall Street and he's the co-founder and CEO of Every Table, which is a social enterprise that sells fresh, delicious meals at prices everyone can afford. He's also the founder and executive director, excuse me, of Grocery Ships, which is a nonprofit that helps low-income families struggling with food-related illnesses like obesity and diabetes. So if somebody could get as far away from Wall Street as possible, I would say he's done it. 
He's a father of two. He lives in LA. And I'm going to stop talking about him and give you Sam Polk. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash. Oh my God. I think my copy has like blood stains on it from shooting up while reading it. Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? So I was telling you, it was thank you for coming to do this, by the Happy way. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And I tore through your memoir, like I would say in 24 hours, which is impressive considering like I didn't have 24 hours to do it and I did it anyway. It's like, it's fantastic. Thank you. And it was a result of a piece that you wrote for the Times. Well, it actually wasn't like people. The funny thing about that is that people, and it almost saddens me, like people think it came out of the New York Times piece, but I worked so hard on writing that book and it was almost like that then allowed me to write the New York Times piece. Oh, you'd written the book before? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, but so then what happened with that piece? I mean, so what what year was that? That, that, that was January 2014. And it was like instantly viral. It was massively. I think it was shared like 90,000 times on Facebook and like millions of readers. And it was published in China and Korea. And it was crazy. Well, did that surprise you? I mean, I had no... It was my first sort of interaction with media. And that... So it was like crazy like I had this sort of woman um, communications person who I had sort of randomly met that was helping me with it but I was basically scheduled for interviews to the 15 minutes for like weeks she was like I've never seen this except for basically like presidential candidates and I was like to be honest like I'm like an introvert and I did sort of like some of that stuff but for the most part I felt like vulnerable and exposed and completely overwhelmed and I had a lot of sort of judgment about how I handled that, which I've sort of now forgiven myself for. <laughs> okay, but but so but that was really putting yourself out there for somebody who's an introvert. Yeah. And, you know, to feel exposed. You know, I, I I think that the one thing I do in my writing is I somebody asked me like, how is it that you're sort of able to be so honest in your writing? And for me, for whatever reason, it just seems like I have nothing left to defend basically. So I just mm-hmm. put it out there and it seems to work. What do you mean by that? I think like a lot of times, and and me included, but a lot of people sort of put up artifice and try to project who they want to be in some sense. And, and basically that's what I did growing up and trying to be the athlete or the cool guy in school or whatever. And for whatever reason in my writing that just sort of goes away. So I'm able to just put down on the page all the sort of ugly, messy, insecure feelings and... I think people identify with that. Do you think that's a result of sort of burning out on trying to be somebody different? You know, I I do think that like there were so many times that I sort of adopted yet another skin and that would work for a while and then it would stop. And over, uh, you know, decades of sort of doing that, I guess I kept getting closer and closer to this core idea of who I am that really has nothing to do with those things. Um, and so I think that's what comes out on the page. Was it like you wrote this thing and you submitted it? I feel like I heard you just blindly submitted it. To op-ed at newyorktimes.com. So you send this thing and you, part of you has to be going, well, no one will really see this. Yeah, I definitely felt like that. And the funny thing is I actually submitted it and I never got a response. Oh my God. And then they just ran it? No, 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 no. So I submitted it, never got a response. And then like, for whatever reason, like 45 days later, I was like, 
alone in my house drinking a lot of coffee and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to send it in again. And it was like, it was almost like I felt something was about to happen. And so I like wrote up a follow-up email and I sent it in and literally 10 minutes later, I got an email back from Trish Hall, who at the time was the head op-ed editor for the New York Times saying, this is great. Let me talk to you. And that was the beginning. Had she not, had they not seen it? The she first had time? like, she said that her lieutenant had put it on her desk, but she hadn't got to it. And so how long between that and it running? Like it was probably week? like, no, no, it was probably like two months because she asked me to do a revision and I had to work on that. And then there's like, the cool thing about the times was like seeing that crazy process of like, you know, all of a sudden it's in the system and then you have fact checkers and you're just watching the piece get like, edited down but in a beautiful way so it's like hardened journalists like pulling out extra words and tightening and da, 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 and it's just like in the system have you written for other publications yeah i have been published in the la times the oc register huffington post but new york times is a different beast well yeah know. you know it's like because i came up doing magazine I, I i had a modern love published in the times but the truth oh. is that process wasn't that different than like writing for details used to be the best magazine art you know rip details because that's how I would feel. I would turn in something that was pretty good, and I would work with someone who was more talented than me, who would make me sound so much better than I had. And that is dead today. That does not happen. You know, I could probably accept at the Times, and all those magazines are going under. But so, oh, and it was, was it also called For the Love of Money? Was that the piece? You know what is funny is I had titled it something like Wealth Addicts Anonymous, mm. and I was basically the Times chooses their own headlines. Yeah. And so I said, you know, I really want it to be this. And they chose for the love of money. And funnily enough, like, I think that was a perfect title and it became the title of my book. Yeah. You know, so. so you had completed the book by that point? I'd completed the book. Um, my sort of journey to get this published was like, I couldn't get an agent for the longest time. I think the agent that ended up accepting me was the 82nd sort of query letter that I had sent. Wow. And then he then was very excited about the book and submitted it to 15 publishers and all of them but one passed and that was Holt. And then, but Holt wanted a full rewrite. And so it was sort of in the midst of that rewrite that the New York Times that I wrote this op-ed. And all 81 of them were like, <laughs> God damn it. You know what? It actually wasn't, you know, it wasn't even like that. Like this guy, Greg Smith, I don't know if you heard that name, but he was this Goldman Sachs guy that published an op-ed in the New York Times called Why I Left Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. And he published that op-ed two years before I did and got a $1.5 million signing bonus or um, advance. And then apparently the book was awful and nobody bought it. And so all the publishing world was like terrified of like right. another bad Wall Street book, basically. Right. So it wasn't like I got in a big advance. But what I was so excited about is like I would never have imagined that Scribner, who I had known for a long time, you know, Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And, and I remember when my agent like asked me to go to a meeting with them, the guy who runs Scribner, Colin Harrison, was a professor at Columbia when I was there. And I tried to get into one of his classes. Wow. and he basically rejected me and right. so I remember like I walked into Scribner and all of a sudden it was one guy and then three people from the PR team and then Colin Harrison walks in and sits down and they're like looking at me and then he's like we love your book. <laughs> <laughs> Were you like, I tried to get into your class? Of course I did. Told I told yeah, him that. Yeah. You know, I was, I was in New York at the time because I was in the midst of this like crazy, you know, today show and CBS and CNBC and blah, blah, blah. And so like I walked in there and I was just like, it was one of those weekends, you know, like you'd always 
sort dreamed of wanted. Of. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I hadn't really dreamed of it, but like, yeah, you know, it was all for, for a few minutes, you know, everything was, perfect. I was the most interesting person in the world. <laughs> you know <what> I, mean? <laughs> I know. I know. I, um, and so what, just for people who don't know, I hope they're all madly Googling the New York times piece right now and reading it, but let's talk about your journey and specifically about the addiction. I, th- I find the money addiction fascinating because people don't talk about it. That's right. That's right. So, so tell me about, you know, the emphasis of, on money when you were growing up and how that manifested, how it, you know, played out for you. So my dad, uh, we grew up in Glendale, California, a suburb of Los Angeles. And my dad was this sort of Willie Loman type character, this sort of out of work salesman who had these huge dreams of, you know, selling a screenplay or selling a business for millions of dollars. But that sort of fantasy contrasted with the reality of our lives, which was, you know, junky cars that broke down and, um, you know, rented houses and the power getting turned off because we couldn't pay the bills. And, you know, there was actually also a lot of tension between my parents and my house. And, you know, the only thing that was as big as my dad's ambition was basically his anger. And so I think from a pretty early age, I had this belief that money was going to fix everything. It's what my dad believed, but it was also like my sort of early experiences were, you know, being this sort of like chubby, insecure kid that could not figure out how to exist in the world. And so we were talked about the skins earlier, but from a very early age, I was trying to figure out what I could do on the outside that would make me feel how I wanted to feel powerful, important, um, solid. And I thought that you know, and in the end goal was basically that money was going to get me there. Mm-hmm. So anyways, when I was, uh, you know, young, I was in LA and then I got into Columbia and then, um, you know, basically started down the drug and alcohol path. And we can talk about that, but I sort of, you know, went through that and then somehow despite, you know, having been arrested three times and kicked out of Columbia and kicked off the wrestling team and, you know, I, I ended up still getting a job on Wall Street. <laughs> but you weren't the only one still getting a job on Wall Street after all of that, right? Well, I would say I, I wasn't the only white male Ivy Leaguer to do right. that. I mean, that right. is the thing about privilege, right? Is like Columbia protects its own. And that right. is not something that's given to a lot of people. So you get this job and you start making real money. And what happened? Did that sort of set off the phenomenon of craving? I mean, I think I had the craving from the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, like I remember when I got my first bonus and it was like $40,000 and it was the first time that I had, didn't have to check my ATM balance, you know, when I took out money and wasn't living, living paycheck to paycheck. And it felt so good to have that. Um, but even, you know, shortly after that, the, the thing that's tough about Wall Street is like sitting next to, you're on a trading floor and everybody sits next to each other. So I'm excited about my $40,000 bonus. And then I hear a whisper that the guy down the row got paid $2 million that year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just started to feed this thing. And so by the time I was like 26 or 27, I was making hundreds of thousands to a million dollars a year and living this life that I had always dreamed of. So, you know, it was actually before Uber. So, you know, I had these black cars picking me up from the airport back when that actually meant something, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. uh, staying at, you know, Ritz Carlton's and flying first class and spending $700 on a hotel 
But I remember this moment when I was out at this club in Vegas on this um, broker boondoggle. So brokers basically facilitate trades between um, hedge funds or banks, and they basically have this unlimited expense account. So this broker had flown us in a helicopter to the airport, flown out to Las Vegas, staying in a fancy hotel, going to Nobu for dinner. And then that night we were at this spectacular club, and it was thumping music and tons of beautiful women and champagne all around. And I was actually sober at that point. So I wasn't drinking. I was actually just sitting in the corner sort of wrestling with this thought, which is that even though my life looked like I'd wanted it to look since I was a little kid, I felt just like I always had. Right. And the funny thing about that moment is like, if you read any Wall Street memoir, they have that moment. It's almost a cliche. It's basically like the I feel empty moment, you know? Um, I think fortunately for me and the book and everything, like for me, that sort of realization was just the beginning of really this journey to sort of figure out where this desire for money and this sort of hole that had been created inside me was from, you know? So what about all the people out there that, you know, the people on Wall Street who are writing the memoirs are the ones that had the epiphany. That's why they're talking about their moment that it's empty. What about all those people that aren't, the majority? Like, what do you think is fueling? Is it just like a lack of self-awareness? Do they really still believe money's going to do it for them? Do they have no, no soul? <laughs> no, I do think they have soul. And I, I do think, you know, that Wall Street gets pilloried and caricatured. Um, but I have a lot of good friends on Wall Street and they're for the most part, just normal people. But what I do think happens is like there is a lot of unhappiness and depression and addiction and generally that feeling of emptiness. Like I don't know any Wall Street guy who wouldn't make a joke about, oh yeah, I do this, but I, I should be doing something better with my life or something more important. So it's almost like they know that the work itself maybe isn't high on their list of things they think is important to the world. But what they do get is a million dollars a year and two million dollars a year. And, you know, if you think about, you know, our culture and how there's basically these stepping stones to success. So you're in high school and maybe you get into a good private high school and then you get into this great college and then you get a big internship and maybe that internship turns into a job at Goldman Sachs and maybe then you get to be a vice president at Goldman Sachs and there's this ladder that I can speak from experience that it is really, really difficult to get off that ladder. And the number of emails that I get from people on Wall Street who want to leave Wall Street versus the number of people that actually do leave Wall Street, right. it's it, its the most tiny fraction. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's hard and it's, it, it means both stepping away from the money, but it also means stepping away from the value system that you've lived your entire life by. Right. And that's terrifying to terrifying. go, well, what is the point of life then? You know, it's so, I, I've always envied people who kind of think that money is it because they don't have to ponder the deepest questions, especially by the way, you know, when you talk about a situation like your dad's where you don't ever get to the point where you get it. So you never, you can live in that belief system. I think that's right. I mean, I think that's why Death of a Salesman became right. such this iconic American play because it was, it wasn't about, like, that's the thing is like America's wealth addiction problem is not that there's so many people with oodles of money that keep spending it. But, you know, there's definitely these billionaires and they definitely are addicted and that's a problem. But 76% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck and we're all sort of like caught in this 
very understandable belief system that if we finally get that money, if we win the lottery, then everything will be taken care of. And it's a criticism that I get, which is like, well, now that you have money, it's easy to say that. And that's true. It also doesn't make it any less true that when you get all the money, it's sort of not the answer. Well, and it's like those happiness studies. I, I think they say at $75,000 a year, there's a drop off. Yeah. You want your basic needs are met. Yeah. And my sort of personal opinion is that like, it's actually not about the money. Whether you have the money or whether you don't is not the consequential variable in whether or not you're living a fulfilled life. It's just part of the equation. I remember my wife and I were then girlfriend, now wife, were traveling in India after I left Wall Street and we, you know, met this weirdly spiritual guy on the train and, and he was like, you know, in India, money is important, but it is one of four or five important things in a life. Friendship and community and passion for your work and all these things that most of our conversations in America focus just on the money. Yeah. So if you have a sort of addictive personality, you know, to me, addiction is, and we sort of talked about this, this sort of like, I don't feel okay. I've got a hole in me. I got to fill it with something. Would you say you were sort of trying drugs, alcohol, and money with equal measure? And sex, you and know, sex. and God, and, and food, you mm -hmm. know, um, and it still happens to this day. Like that, that is, I think, the ultimate message around this money stuff is like, for me, it was about this lack of self worth and terrible relationship that I had with my dad and this feeling of insecurity and this sort of hole inside me that I do believe was created in childhood. And then all the myriad ways that I tried to fill that and the ultimate truth, you know, let me tell you the ultimate truth of all things, but is that these things aren't going to fix it. And that for me, what it really took is for lack of a better word, therapy, yeah. you know, like really working to sort of uncover those traumas and pains from childhood and work through them. And that sort of process, process for me was really about filling up from the inside and healing just a little bit each week so that I could build up a sense of self that was enough to sort of withstand or take its own belief system as the sort of operating principle. And you ask about the people on Wall Street, like that's what's missing is like, they are great people. They're nice people. They're married. They're, you know, people think that it's all sort of Leonardo DiCaprio snorting cocaine off people's, you know, bottoms, but it's not right. that. It's just oftentimes people that, and this is my sort of judgmental view from the outside, that don't have a core that aren't strong enough to say, or, or, or maybe just different from me, but aren't, you know, about to say, you know, this is what I'm about. This is what I think is valuable. And it's different from this world. And so even though the culture says this is important, and I mean, the broader culture, but also, you know, it's hard to understand, like you're in the Wall Street culture, it's a cloistered culture right. where, you know, making $800,000 a year is seen as failure and making right. $50 million a year is very possible. So right. most of the people on Wall Street feel like they don't have enough feel like they're not as successful as they want to be. Right. So what was interesting to me is the way you came to therapy. Like you went in, are you still with that therapist? Yeah, we've, we, I, I saw her for basically 12 years. She would, you know, react in umbrage if you called her a therapist. She's a spiritual counselor. Right, but, right, um, right. Yeah, I don't see her right now, um, but she has been a huge blessing in my life. She's, so, so you were brought to her by an ex-girlfriend. Yeah. And you were very cynical very about cynical. this process. And then it turned out that she was sort of the key to your healing. 
Well, that, you know, it's funny because my dad was a sort of, I would call him a pseudo intellectual guy, but it was always, uh, you know, about reading Thomas Friedman in the New York Times and let's have an intellectual discussion about things and what is your degrees and where are your schooling from? And that's why one of the reasons that Columbia was so important to me. And then all of a sudden I meet this woman who didn't have a PhD, you know, wasn't even really licensed, hadn't gone. I don't think she'd graduated high school. Right. Um, so I was very dismissive of her. I do think that sort of what she represented in the world and came to represent to me was that that sort of opposite of intellectualism and that, you know, we have this way of like this sort of smug way of a cult as a culture of, you know, hierarchically defining people's value based on what sort of degrees they've gotten, you know, without sort of taking a moment to recognize the sort of holistic idea of a person, which is so much more than your brain and so much more than your schooling. And it was really a great lesson in humility for me to, you know, come to understand over the years that this woman, despite not having a degree and despite not having gone to Harvard, was really world class in, you know, a practice and a value system that hadn't even been on my radar before. Yeah. And do you think that prepared you for the sort of, I don't know if sobriety involves spiritual work for you. For sure it did. Um, it does. So, okay. And so in terms of drugs and alcohol, so you were in eating, you were doing all of it. And then what was the sort of moment when each of those things bottomed out? Yeah. I mean, it really was, you know, by the time I was 22, I had been kicked out of Columbia and kicked out the wrestling team and arrested several times. Um, but it really was a breakup. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been through like, a, you know, one of those first mm -hmm. love breakups, mm -hmm. but it was like, it's funny too, is because it came at a time in my life where all those things, you know, I'd been fired from a job from fist fighting, all those things that been kicked out of Columbia, like all those things that I had used for my value were gone. So at that moment, I literally had this woman mm -hmm. and she was like the most attractive girl in school and the most pot she had been you know prom queen at blah 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 and and so when she broke up with me it was like my last remaining anchor of value was gone mm -hmm. and it was just purely like you know it sounds funny but like you know you get you get broken up with bad enough and it's like felt like I was gonna throw up yeah sweating all the time i mean yeah. it was like i'm almost embarrassed to say it but it was bad yeah <laughs> you know? yeah i mean and it's sort of like you know not to use all the cliches but it's just sort of like that's the you have to get there i mean from a breakup or from whatever it is yeah in order to be willing to change because those guys on wall street aren't changing because they haven't had something bad enough happen i think that's 100 percent right and that's why like you know i wrote this piece in the new york times about this idea of wealth addiction but that's why you never bought them out it's right because there's always more money but even more there's no like dui there's no jail sentence instead there's awards you know and your name on buildings and stuff like that and so. yes men and yes women who are constantly going to tell you it's okay i mean my bottom was like there was no one around anymore Nobody wanted to hear my shit anymore. Yeah. But if you can afford to have those people around and their livelihood is dependent on you. You know, it's funny you say that. Like my last boss on Wall Street was this like crazy, narcissistic, arrogant guy that nobody that basically worked for him had anything positive to yeah. say about him or... But he commanded a tremendous amount of respect from that room because he held the held the purse strings. And it was funny to see the sort of dissonance between like somebody's actual sort of internal character and then how they were treated because of their position in the world. Yep. Yep. But you had that mentor. I mean, he's like a well-known Wall Street guy, oh, I yeah. guess. Oh, he just seemed so wonderful. He's the greatest person. That, that, he's one of the reasons that like... 
you know, sometimes I get sort of painted as a Wall Street critic and, and in some sense I am a critic of the culture, but I also really do push back on people because funnily enough, the guy with the biggest heart that I've ever met is one of the most successful people on Wall Street. Yeah. What was his name? Do we say his name? Well, his name in the book is Marshall Masters. Right, right. It's kind of like Eminem, sort of like Marshall Mathers. And so how long have you been sober then? 14 years now. Oh, we have very close dates. I'm July 22nd, 2002. Nice. Class of 2002. I'm class of 2000. No big deal. <laughs> um, but so you, was that a struggle? I mean, I remember in the book, you and your brother would trying to get sober together. Yeah. You know, getting sober for me, like it was hard, but it wasn't like hard, like multiple relapses. Like I love drinking and I love drugs and I God, I still miss weed and cocaine and ecstasy and all those things. But pretty quickly on, like it became less about fighting myself to not have a drink that night and fighting myself to see if I really could just be in the world and be conscious right. and like experience these very painful feelings, which is basically how it felt to be alive for yep. a long time. Yeah. You know? I know, because people will say that all the time. They're like, isn't it hard not to drink? And I'm like, no, but it's hard to live. <laughs> totally, 100%. You know, and to not have that escape from the thoughts and, and you know, the, the go-to coping mechanism. That's I mean, hard. Yeah, I mean, it was like, the funny thing I think about drinking is like how much time it took in like a really wonderful way. Is like you start drinking on a Wednesday night and it could be Sunday until you're right. conscious again, basically. Right, right. And so, but you never went like the quote money program that exists is not appropriate for you, like debtors anonymous or whatever. Yeah, no, I was, I mean, I did a good job of saving money basically. <laughs> right, right, right. So do you feel like, like how do you heal a sort of money obsession? You know, I think that if you got any of the sort of heads of these major rehabs like, you know, Sierra Tucson or Meadows or Promises or whatever passages and all that, you know, right. they would tell you that like, I mean, if you think about just by their very nature, it's people that can afford $40,000 for like a four week stint. Mm -hmm. So they're all getting these people that they, it may be drugs or alcohol or bulimia or whatever that brought them in. But at the core of it is this sort of money sickness. Yep. And how do you heal it? Like, who knows? Like, that is like the, I think it is like part of the key sort of issues that our culture is working on. Like, if you think about, you know, the issues that are coming up these days, Black Lives Matters and gender issues with women and mm -hmm. All of this is about the inherent selfishness that is part of the sort of entrenched white patriarchal power structure. And mm -hmm. all that is like, a, it's just another word for addiction. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we clearly have a lot, but we don't want to share it. And if you think about the nature of addiction, it really is like you become so consumed with your own need for something that you lose sight of how your own selfishness in that pursuit impacts other people. And impacts you. And impacts you too, totally. So it's like, I think that's a great point. You know, like Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement would always talk about the need to heal, not just for the welfare of the African-American community, but for the welfare of the body politic, that, that this sickness that is keeping us apart hurts us all. Right. And I do think there's deep truth in that, that we don't talk about as much these days. But in, okay, wait, in terms of healing from the money sort of addiction because like with food and sex you gotta handle money you can't just be like i'm sober from that so you left wall street and you start let's talk about the company that you started 
Well, so I left Wall Street and it really was like a withdrawal process. Like I would wake up, you know, you know, I had plenty of savings in the bank, like mm-hmm. more than one would need basically. Mm-hmm. And I would still wake up, you know, six months later and be like, oh my God, what did I do? I can't believe I walked away from that. And and, and that would basically persist every couple of months for years. And then, then every year for a couple more years. And like, it's funny, like they talk about, you know, addiction and especially when it comes to money, like for the most part, money is really your own projection of your fear in the future. Because mm-hmm. for the most part right now, we're all taken care of. We can eat whatever we want. We have a place to stay. We all mm-hmm. sort of figure that out in the present moment. Mm-hmm. But money becomes this way that you sort of think about in the future, I'm going to be worried. I'm going to, and I still do that. So it really is about sort of staying in the present. But then about sort of careers, you know, um, I think that for me, what ended up happening is I started a nonprofit in 2013 called Grocery Ships that works at the intersection of poverty and food-related health issues like obesity. And I've now started a social enterprise called Every Table that sells healthy food affordable for everyone. And we can talk about those things and they're incredible. But I think the point I'd like to make about them is like, I don't think that I have the answer. Like, I think I'm on a journey like everybody else. And, you know, if life continues going as well as it is, I'll in five years realize an idiot, what an idiot I am right now, you know, sort of thing. But I do think that, you know, on Wall Street, my life was all about ambition and accumulation and me, me, me. And now I've found work that touches on that stuff. They're still sort of harnessing that competitive side of me, but is really about service and helping people that are less fortunate. And I don't mean to like say myself as a Jesus figure. Like it really is, you know, I've come to believe in the deep importance of finding work that you are emotionally connected to that you think is not only like interesting, like that's what Wall Street guys always say to me. They're like, I don't think I, 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 I don't want to lose the intellectual challenge of Wall Street. And the truth is the world is intellectually challenged. Like just here's the brothers Karamazov. Go right. and read that. You right. know you'll be intellectually challenged. Um, right. But what it's really about is finding work that that you feel really proud about. Like this is what I'm doing in the world. That I want to put my flag in the ground. And for me, that's been sort of more important than the money or intellectual challenge. And so, how it's based here, this company. Yeah, so every table has gotten this like crazy amount of press these days. So basically, it's a social enterprise that opens grab-and-go storefronts selling these incredibly fresh, healthy, delicious meals made by some of the best chefs in the country. But because of our sort of innovative business model in terms of keeping cost structure low, we're able to sell not only this incredible food for $8 in sort of more affluent areas like Pacific Palisades and Santa Monica, but we also open storefronts in in what are called food deserts where there's neighborhoods where there's very little fresh food and tons and tons of fast food places like South Los Angeles, Inglewood, Compton. And in those places, we opened the same stores selling the same food, but they're selling the food for $4. So cheaper than fast food. Yeah. Where's one near here? Yeah. There's one in South Los Angeles. It's 1101 West 23rd street at the corner of union and 23rd. And you got one in Hollywood. Oh, it's coming. Okay. Yeah. We're going to, you want to open it at WeWork? Hollywood? (laughs) We could use it. It's a, yeah, cultural wasteland around here. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try to try to open one. Here. Yeah, do it, do it, do it for me. So today you are a father of two. You live here in Los Angeles. I'm a father of two, uh, married to my wife, and we've got a one month old and a two and a half year old. Mm-hmm. And are you writing another book? You know, I'm writing. Uh, it's harder these days, um, and I haven't sort of picked a book, but it's definitely a dream of mine. And there is some interest from Hollywood in your current book. There's interest book. in Hollywood. Um, I'm, I'm 
particularly gratified that this guy, John Gatins, who is the uh, writer of Flight, which mm-hmm. is one of my sort of favorite sobriety movies. Um, although I know it's not one of yours. No, it's not. I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry, John. <laughs> yeah, he'll be devastated to hear that. I'm sure. But I loved it, and and he's interested. And in, you know, that's a total crapshoot if the movie's going to be made. But it would mm-hmm, be cool. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you know, in terms of like any sort of spiritual practice that helps you stay centered and happy and focus on the right things. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's you know, going to meetings, going to therapy. You know, I also do these things that I, I don't like saying these things like these are the answer basically but some of the things that I do to stay grounded is like in the morning I'll do sort of a humility list is what I call mm. it so I'll basically just write down and I have just a list of these on my computer like all the people in my life that I basically feel responsible for so that's you know my wife and my daughter and my brothers and sisters and my parents and my friends and the people that work for me and And I'll just go down one by one and think like, is there something that they need that I can give them, you know? And that's a helpful practice to keep me out of my natural state, which is basically me, 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 (laughs) me. So you might, so you go like, okay, so my brother could use what yeah and so so like like if my brother you know one of my brothers let's say my brother's struggling with like business issues mm-hmm. like if i don't do that list and i'll just not think about it basically right, but then right. I'll, I'll think about it and i'll be like okay is there anything i can do or i'll just then be like okay let me send him an email to be like hey man i'm just thinking about you i got yeah. your back you know yeah. or schedule a time for me to call him later when i'm in the car stuff yeah. like that and so yeah. just it is not in my sort of pure nature to just be I'm self-centered and obsessed with myself mm-hmm. half the time. So it's helpful to me to sort of figure out sort of a forced way to sort of think about and consider what other people need. Yeah. So if people want to find out more about you and uh, the book, and where where's the... There's so many places to go. I yeah. mean, what I prefer people go is to Amazon and buy For the Love of Money by Sam Polk. Mm-hmm. Um, you can always also go to everytable.com to learn about the business. You can go to groceryships.org to learn about the nonprofit. You can go to sampolk.me to learn about me. Um, so many places. You could do the social media thing too. Yeah, all the at Sam Polk on Twitter and Facebook. Or no, I think on Facebook, it's like at the Sam Polk, which is awful, but they didn't have that. Yeah, Polk some available. other Sam Polk got in there. So, Damn it. I know. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, so that was Sam Polk on After Party Pod. Uh, you can find him online, sampolk.me, and some other places that he just told you about. If you want to listen to my other podcast, it's called You've Got Issues with Anna David. You can find that wherever you found this. And that's about it. Check out Sam Polk. Go buy his book right now, but just give yourself like a day off from the world because you're going to want to read it in one sitting. I'll see you next time. 